Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions, and you can visit our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media, as we really do appreciate it, and we're very grateful for all the support we get from you, the listeners. We have a great show for you today. We're going to be discussing James Hoban, an architect who rose from very humble beginnings in County Kilkenny to design the White House in Washington, D.C., we're very pleased to welcome to the show the president of the White House Historical Association, Stuart D. McLaurin. Mr. McLaurin has held leadership roles with national nonprofit and higher education organizations, such as the American Red Cross, Georgetown University, and the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation. Stuart, you're very welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with uh, both of you today. Now, before we begin, could you tell us about the White House Historical Association and your role as president? Well, I am privileged to be the president of this terrific organization that was founded by First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy in 1961 as a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. We do not get involved with politics or policy, and our role is exactly the same regardless of who the president and first lady may be. So we have had uh, now the privilege of working with 12 presidents and first ladies, and our mission really takes uh, two different tracks. The first is we provide non-taxpayer funding to maintain the beautiful museum quality of the White House that Mrs. Kennedy is largely responsible for. And then we also teach and tell the stories of the White House and its history, going back to 1792 when that cornerstone was laid, which we'll be talking about today. So through the years, we've had an opportunity to publish books, such as the one, uh, the Hoban book, many others. We have a quarterly magazine, education programs. Our website, whitehousehistory.org, is rich with wonderful content and depth on the White House and all aspects of its history. And so it's a wonderful privilege to share this information, share this rich American history, not only with Americans, but with interested people around the world. Now, Stuart, you mentioned the book there, and it's really a beautiful anthology about James Hoban, and it was launched, appropriately enough, there on St. Patrick's Day. And you were mentioning there about how people might be able from Ireland and Brit to order it. Yes, well, it is available on our website, whitehousehistory.org, and we have a terrific partnership with Federal Express that until the end of June, if you order the book from our website, and the book is going to Ireland, or the United Kingdom, it's free shipping, no cost at all for shipping, thanks to Federal Express. 
So you can order as many as you wish and uh, the shipping will be free. Now, Stuart, can you tell us a little bit about James Hoban, the man, and his early life in Ireland? Well, he was uh, born and grew up in Kilkenny in a very modest means, and he was exposed early on to carpentry and wheelwriting and uh, not specifically architecture as we would know it or call it today, but he came up through various crafts and various skills and, of course, would have been exposed to the beautiful Irish country houses, uh, Desert Court and others. And then in Dublin, under the tutelage or the exposure to the work of Thomas Ivory and the projects that he was able to be exposed to there with the Newcomen Bank, Linster House and others, his influence really grew. Of course, uh, due to the uh, penal laws, which had been in effect in Ireland, as you know, far better than I do since the uh, late 17th century, the advancement in any field or career for a Roman Catholic was challenging and difficult. And so uh, he left, he took his promising young talents and came to America. But I think in describing his roots in Ireland, they were pure to the Irish countryside. They were quite humble and modest, but I think he was eager and aggressive to learn and grow and to develop skills and talents that I'm not sure at that point he realized. In fact, that's one of the things that, that I hope we talk about is the uniqueness of, of this man who is little known by his own name, but is widely known by the reputation of the three words in his legacy, the White House. Yes, and there's an interesting thing in the book that's mentioned that as a student in the Dublin Society School of Architectural Drawing, he won a medal. And given the choice between the medal and a cash prize, he chose the medal. And what benefit that would have been going to America to show people the value of his work. That's exactly right. And that was quite characteristic of Hoban throughout his life. In fact, became true uh, later, even in Washington, D.C. He knew that having the physical medal that he had been awarded for his work would be like a resume that we would have today, would be physical demonstration of the success of his work, where if he received the money alternative, that would be nice to spend, but once it was spent, it would be gone. So he used these medals almost uh, as building blocks in his career to take one job to the other. I don't know how unique that was, in his field or any field, but it was certainly wise of him to do. And we have in the American History Museum here in Washington, uh, we still have in the collection some of uh, his medals uh, that he was awarded. Stuart, he arrived in America just around the time of the American Revolution, didn't he? That's right. And what was his attitude, or do we know, to the American Revolution and the tumultuous events of, of those years? Well, we know as a Roman Catholic, he settled in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, as a Roman Catholic, there was not great recognition or much practice of that faith in the American South until after uh, the Revolutionary War. So I don't think that it was an activity that he personally invested himself in. I think he was deeply involved in architecture uh, there in South Carolina. Uh, Pierce Purcell was his uh, business partner, American architect, if you will, that he was aligned with there, and they built many uh, buildings in Charleston. Uh, But I don't think uh, that the American Revolution itself was something that he was uh, actively involved with. 
But he seems to have come nevertheless to the attention of George Washington, the great general and first president of the United States. That's correct. In 1791, Washington took a southern tour of the United States, and one of the stops on that tour was Charleston, South Carolina. And he was introduced to Hoban, and he uh, saw some of the work that Hoban had undertaken there in Charleston. And then he continued on his tour, came back to Philadelphia, where he was living as president. Just the year before, in 1790, the Congress had passed the Residence Act, which gave George Washington as president 10 years to build the federal city in this plot of land, which we now know as Washington, D.C., 10 square miles on the Potomac River, forged from land that was Virginia's and Maryland's. And 10 years was the time that he had to build the Capitol building for the Congress, the President's House. Much later, it would become known as the White House, but the President's House or the Executive Mansion for the President. And so it was early in that 10-year time frame that he would have met James Hoban. He returned to Philadelphia and was contemplating architects and designers uh, for this project, this White House project. And he recalled Hoban, not by name, but by reputation and sought after him. Hoban went to Philadelphia, met with George Washington. And I have to think that uh, Washington had his finger on the scale a bit, even though there was a competition to select the builder, the designer, Washington knew exactly who he wanted in Hoban because I think they had a good rapport I think he knew that Hoban was a craftsman of what was highly regarded and respected in Europe, and that would be great stone houses, stone buildings, but those were not yet so common in America. And Washington knew that if such a building was built for the president's residence, that it would be respected by the capitals of Europe. And that was what he had in mind with Hoban. Now, others submitted designs, as I mentioned, even Thomas Jefferson submitted a design. But Washington knew what he wanted, and he selected Hoban, and it proved to be a very successful partnership. And regarding the design of the White House, what did Washington have in mind? Did he have in mind a you know a great classical building that would remind people of ancient Rome and the Roman Republic, or, or what kind of thoughts did he have that he, when he was discussing with James Hoban? Well, Washington himself never traveled to Europe uh, at any point in his life, and so he had never personally seen uh, the buildings of Europe, but. And he knew that the stone houses were highly regarded. He understood uh, the work of uh, the craftsmanship of, of the stone masons, stone cutters in Ireland and in Scotland. He knew that there was access to similar stone here in uh, Northern Virginia that could build similar uh, houses. And so I think sort of the neoclassicism, neo-palladium influence of Hoban was very attractive to George Washington. There were some who wanted a much grander palace uh, for the American president, but Washington was opposed to that. He wanted something substantial because this was not only the home to the president and his family, but it was the office to the president and his staff. So it had to be substantial enough that it would accommodate both purposes, and it also had to be impressive enough that it would be the home of the American head of state but it would not be reminiscent of a royal palace of Europe. So, you know, I don't know how much George Washington had in his mind's eye of exactly what this would look like, but I do think the designs and proposals that Hoban presented to him resonated with Washington, 
And uh, that's what led Washington to select him. And I think what Washington wanted and what Hoban designed has served uh, this country uh, very, very well over time. Well, if we could look at the inspirations that Hoban perhaps had when he was designing the White House, one building that's often mentioned is Leinster House, the Oireachtas. And what effect did those buildings and Hoban's time in the Dublin Architectural School have on his design for the White House, do you think, Stuart? Well, having been to Dublin and walking up on Leinster House, of course, our White House today has a north portico, which was not added until about 25 plus years after uh, the original build of the White House. So you don't have that north portico on Leinster House. But if you walk up to Leinster House, as I did, and you see it there, of course, it's not painted white as ours is, but the, the field design, the windows, the spatialness of it, um, the, the length and width is essentially what Hoban crafted or had designed initially for our White House. And so uh, Leinster House would be visually appear to have one additional floor than the White House would have. Washington reduced its height so that it would give the appearance to the eye of the north front of the White House of having two floors, when in actuality it's quite deceiving. There's six levels within the White House with mezzanines and, and sub-basement levels. But as you walk up on Leinster House, you feel that look. And I did. I walked right up there and I thought, that, that, that's the White House. You feel it. You get why that would be an inspiration. And then uh, just down the road uh, at the Newcomen Bank, or, or was the New Newcomen Bank then and now a, a government building, and I went in that space and the oval rooms in there, uh, spatially and certainly the oval shape of them, I thought this had to be uh, inspirational to Hoban. Now there's a counter theory to that, that Washington uh, used to have these levees where he would have people gather in a circle or semicircle, and he would go around to them and bow, and that would be a formal way of presenting and interacting uh, in the late American uh, 18th century. And so they thought the bow of the window creating an oval was of Washington's design to uh, allow that levy type of engagement to take place. But I could not be in those oval rooms of the Newcomen Bank and not have a feeling that those are exactly what inspired uh, Hoban to present to Washington. You go into the White House today, and not even counting the Oval Office, that's a totally separate building, but there are three ovals in the main building of the residence. There's the diplomatic reception room on the ground floor, there's what is now the blue room on the state floor, and there's the yellow oval room on the residence floor, and they are built in a stack right in the center, a south center of the White House building. And uh, I, 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 I just, I, when I was there, I felt so many of those types of things. And, you know, we all throughout our careers uh, undertake things and reflect back on our educational training or our experience or places we've been and places we've seen. And certainly I think Hoban brought his strong suit of what he knew, what he had worked on, what he had been exposed to, and that resonated with Washington. And there's an urban legend here in Dublin, Stuart, that what was then the Viceregal Lodge, so the residence of the Viceroy in Ireland, and today Orson Uchtaran, the residence of the Irish president, was the template for the White House. But looking up the history of the two buildings, I see that they were built more or less at the same time. So is that just an urban legend or is there anything to that? Well, you know, I, 
I don't know that it was, uh, you know, urban legends uh, exist even here in Washington and regarding the White House. And I think uh, any building that Hoban would have been exposed to in his native Ireland would be fair game. Uh, the Royal Exchange, the Newcomen Bank, Leinster House, Desert Court, all of these, uh, I think, had elements of influence on him uh, and what he did, uh, what he did in Charleston and what he did here in Washington, D.C. Now, he did not do, uh, not design and build just the White House in Washington. He went on to have quite a legacy of building many other buildings here, but it's clearly his signature work, the White House, where you can see what I view as so many elements of the inspiration of his years of training and growing up in Ireland. I mean, it seems like a very kind of inspirational story almost for an immigrant and, you know, resonant almost of the, you know, the American dream and this whole idea. But at that particular time, it wasn't like later decades, you know, Irish Catholics, certainly immigrants were a very small minority in America. Isn't that right? That's true. In fact, one of the buildings that Hoban was influential in crafting was St. Patrick's Church here in Washington, D.C., which was the first Roman Catholic church, first church of any kind that was built outside of Georgetown. Now, Georgetown was viewed as a separate town west of the federal city. There was Holy Trinity Church, which was a Jesuit church there, but that was too far for the builders and the community involved in the the building of the White House that happened to be Roman Catholic, too far for them to go. And so Hoban built the first building of St. Patrick's Church. If you go to the current building there today, there's a wonderful plaque out front that mentions Hoban, talks about him being the designer of the first church. But even prior to that, Lafayette Park is the plot of land just north of the White House, which we know today is a it's the place where all the protests take place. It's a beautiful park. There's a equestrian statue of uh, Andrew Jackson in the middle of the park and four other large statues, uh, one of Lafayette in another corner. And that is the plot of land where the workers all worked in community to build the White House. And there was a carpenter shed, which was the main building, the main work building there. And that was used for worship by Roman Catholics but also by Protestants. And so St. Patrick's Church had its roots in that carpenter shed. The National Presbyterian Church here in Washington has its roots from the Presbyterians that worked, the Scottish stonemasons that came and, and worked and worshiped in that building. And then that evolved to today, this very large Presbyterian church uh, on Nebraska Avenue here in Washington. And so Hoban was very instrumental not just in the buildings of government here, but the buildings of faith here. And the Catholic community did grow. He went on to build the a Catholic seminary here in Washington, which was adjacent to St. Patrick's, and two other uh, church buildings in Washington, D.C. So we think of him as this great American government building architect, but in the ecclesiastical building space, he was also quite active and influential and has a legacy today as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at a little bit, though, is that in Ireland itself, you know, it was still required special permission to build Catholic churches and government jobs like this or government contracts were probably not available to Catholics. So it does probably show the attractiveness for a man like James Hoban of talent, but he couldn't exploit his talents in his native country. That's right. And I understand that the, the first building of St. Patrick's was reminiscent of the church building he would have been familiar with in Kilkenny. 
And you're exactly right, just as in every phase of every career phase, every government role, uh, Catholics were quite limited uh, due to the penal laws, which were, had begun to phase out by the time of uh, Hoban's life, but still to realize a success, unlimited success, unchecked success, uh, he would have to come to America where he would have unlimited opportunity uh, for using his design in any number of, of types of buildings. Well, Hoban wasn't just an architect and a designer of buildings and a White House. He was also a builder and had to oversee such huge logistical projects, such as the building of the White House. That's right. In fact, he had the uh, nickname of being uh, Captain Hoban, and he organized his workers into a militia of sorts. He was quite the manager and disciplinarian. Uh, he, there were some that he did not favor or get along with, and he managed his way through that. There was a group of commissioners here in Washington that were essentially the oversight committee for the White House project, and he was able to manage his way uh, with those. Of course, he had the heavy hand of George Washington in his favor, but he uh, did marshal those very uh, disparate groups of workers into uh, one workforce, and there were enslaved uh, Africans, uh, Americans that were working in this project. There were free Americans from Africa. There were hired laborers. There were the skilled artisans, the stonemasons from Scotland, some workers from Ireland. And it was quite a menagerie of workers that he had to forge together and discipline and uh, create that building. Now, also keep in mind that this federal city was built on this swampy land. It wasn't like a pristine, open, beautiful field that they had to build on. It was not the most desirable of lands. And L'Enfant had been uh, initially retained to design the city. The English architect, Benjamin Latrobe, who was really the first classically trained architect in, in the United States, was also around. But it was Hoban's ability, his skills, experience, and abilities uh, with design, but also the management ones that you uh, reference, where he was able to marshal these various different types of people with various backgrounds that uh, built this house, this iconic house. Well, Stuart, you just mentioned it there, and in the book there is an essay about Hoban's role as both a slave owner and a slave trader. How do you think we should balance acknowledging his achievements while recognizing this uncomfortable fact and also the use of slave labor in constructing so many of the notable buildings in Washington, D.C.? Well, this is a subject that we continue to wrestle with today. It is a blight on our history. And yet, as the White House Historical Association, we have an obligation, a responsibility to tell this part of our history. Most Americans do not know that enslaved persons were used to build the White House. Most Americans do not know or choose to focus on that nine of our early presidents had enslaved persons living, working for them in the White House itself. And there's quite a story to tell there, and I do think Hoban's legacy is secure as the designer and builder of the White House. 
unfortunately, not only did he manage enslaved labor, but we do know he also owned uh, slaves of his own, about a dozen or so. And uh, we have local uh, news records of uh, him uh, buying and selling, which is really horrific to think about. And so it's important for us to shed light on that part of the story, which we do in this book. But if you go to our website, whitehousehistory.org, we've undertaken about a four-year project now on the role and the life of enslaved persons in the president's neighborhood. I mentioned Lafayette Park, where they worked. Today, in a normal day, thousands of people will transverse that park and have no idea that enslaved persons would have lived in that community and worked to build the White House. So we have commissioned a history board that will actually go up at the north end of the park in June of this year, which will tell that history. So as people stop and look at that history board and see the White House beyond, they will know that enslaved laborers were part of that history. This really came to light for us. It was May of 2016, and then First Lady Michelle Obama was giving a commencement talk in New York, and then later that summer, the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia. And she said, I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. Well, as you can imagine, our phone, our internet, we were just deluged with people wanting to know more about that story. And much had been done, Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, other historic homes of presidents had been pressed to tell that story. But ironically, the White House itself had not. And so we knew immediately that the responsibility was ours to research and tell this story, which we have done and we're continuing to do. We've identified about 300 individual enslaved persons, some we know by full name, some we just know by their first name, some we know by some reference to who owned them, but we've identified them and we're trying to build an archive that you can see on our website of the individual people and honor and respect them for their legacy in building the White House that still stands today. And the next step, the next evolution of this project will be genealogical research into the descendants of those who worked on the White House, who built it and lived and worked in the White House. I, I would love to find someone in somewhere in America uh, that has no idea that their ancestor uh, worked in the White House or helped build the White House. And we can bring that rich history to them and, and share that with them and, and hope that they'll feel uh, some pride in the fact that even though dark, dire, awful, shameful circumstances, it is a legacy of their family that they can be proud of in the result that their ancestor built what is the White House today. You know, when we think about slavery in America, we tend to think about cotton plantations and so on in the American South. But it's interesting to see that, you know, some of the enslaved people were actually skilled tradespeople, which might be surprising to this stereotypical idea of what slavery was. Well, that's right. And they were trained and uh, their owners had them trained. And many of the enslaved persons who worked on the White House project were owned by others, but leased to the project. And so one of the challenges we had in identifying the individuals was the payroll would be the owner, not the individual slave. So we had to somehow work around that and, and go then to that owner and that whoever owned that particular slave and try to figure out who they were. 
but they were trained uh, not only in the building of the White House, but about 30 miles downriver, down the Potomac River from Washington, was the quarry in Aquia, Virginia, where the stone was carved from the ground and actually brought upriver 30 plus miles on a raft and offloaded on the shore of the, the federal city to then be carried by cart over to Lafayette, what we now know as Lafayette Park, to build the White House. So enslaved persons were used in all of that, down at the quarry at Aquia, on the rafts coming upriver, offloading them. They had to be trained and equipped. Now, I would like to think that once some of them gained their freedom, they were able to use those skills and abilities for their own benefit and the benefit of their family. But at this point, um, you know, that's still stories that we have to unpack. We were a country being built out of whole cloth here in this new world in the United States in the post-American Revolution timeframe. And this bubbled up, continued uh, not only through the, the early formation of our government, but as you know, the American Civil War that would have been uh, just uh, 60 years after the first president moved into the White House. And then still today, you know, we see evidence of this. It's still a horrible scar on America that we are still grappling with today. And in my role, I can't fix or restore anything about this history, but it is important to tell this history, to learn it, to know it, to share it, to be aware of it. And that is our role and responsibility at the association. If you happen to visit our operational headquarters, which is right on Lafayette Park in Washington, historic Decatur House still has the last remaining example of slave quarters in the president's neighborhood. We maintain that as a teaching facility, an education lab, if you will, and to honor those who would have lived in that space and served those inhabitants of that house and uh, also worked in and around Washington as they were leased out for other roles. But it is tragic and it is horrible, but it's a reality. And uh, we chose to make it an important part of this book because not only was Hoban a user of slave labor, but he was an owner of slaves himself. And it's important to show uh, that side of his, his life, his judgment, his character. Nonetheless, he is the architect of record uh, for the White House, uh, good and bad. And, you know, we can argue on good and bad of all types of sorts that have come through the White House. Uh, but at least we're telling the full story or trying to tell the full story as best we can of this man and his life and his legacy. Sure. And I mean, if history is to have value, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? To tell it in the round of warts and all. But moving on about James Hoban, what did he do after the White House was built or after his role was over? Well, he stayed in Washington and he continued to build private buildings and residences and work on government buildings. He was brought back to the White House after the British fire in 1814. It was important to um, Madison that the house be rebuilt. There was talk of moving it elsewhere to uh, safety where it would not be as easily uh, approached from the Atlantic as Washington DC would be. Uh, there was talk of even moving it as far inland as Cincinnati, which was as far as our country expanded at the time. But Hoban was brought in. Madison wanted to rebuild the White House as it was. And so Hoban was very integral in that. And then involved with uh, Monroe in the South Portico and Andrew Jackson with the North Portico. And it became 
an evolving project that was never really fully finished until the late 1820s, the Jackson administration, the Jackson presidency. So he was around, he was involved in a number of things from the church buildings I mentioned to residences. Unfortunately, his own residence in Washington, D.C. was burned. uh, There was a fire and many of his private papers and records were lost in that fire. So there's not a great deal there. The National Archives here has a few documents of correspondence that belong to Hoban, and we have the medals that I mentioned at the American History Museum, but there's not a lot of uh, first-person records of Hoban's that remain as a result of that fire at his house. But he was around in Washington and then passed away and is buried uh, now at Mount Olivet Cemetery, and we had the privilege of restoring his family plot gravestone uh, for St. Patrick's Day, where we revealed that, and we have an annual wreath laying at his grave site there, and um, we're, we're doing much more than we ever have done before to honor the legacy of this man. And you mentioned the British burning of Washington Stewart in 1814 is the result of the War of 1812 between the United States and Britain, of course. But I believe an Irish-born general was partly responsible for burning the White House, which an Irishman had designed. That's correct. It was an Irishman who had the lead of those uh, British troops that advanced on Washington and burned the Capitol and the White House. And James Madison had actually gone out to see the fighting in Maryland, thinking that the Americans would prevail. And it quickly proved that they were not and began retreat. Madison sent word back to his wife, Dolly, who was at the White House to evacuate. And there's the famous story where she had the Gilbert Stewart portrait of George Washington removed, put into her carriage and evacuated. She had prepared dinner for Madison after he was to have come home that night from the fighting. And the British troops came in and ate the president's dinner drank the president's wine, and then piled the furnishings in the cross hall of the White House and set it on fire. It was significantly damaged, but you're right. The troops were led by an Irishman. The architect was an Irishman, both originally and on the rebuild. So quite a bit of Irish influence uh, on the White House in our early years. And of course, we've had many American presidents who claim Irish ancestry. Our founder, Jackie Kennedy, is married to John Kennedy, Uh, who you know well, the Irish connectivity there, and the current president of the United States, uh, Joe Biden. I had the opportunity to present this Hoban book to him on the day before St. Patrick's Day and was quite pleasantly surprised when he had a press event the next day by Zoom and held up the Hoban book. And this Hoban book still rests on the coffee table in the Oval Office today. So uh, apparently President Biden uh, likes our James Hoban book. So Stuart, one of the images that struck me reading the book was the painting of the laying of the cornerstone of the United States Capitol. And it features Hoban and George Washington. And Washington is wearing his Masonic apron and all the regalia. Could you tell us about Hoban as a Freemason and Masonic influences on the design of the city and some of its most well-known buildings? Well, George Washington was a Mason and took great pride in that. He was present at the cornerstone laying of the United States Capitol building, but he was not present at the cornerstone laying in 1792 at the White House, which is an interesting fact. Apparently he had government business in Philadelphia and was unable to make it down. An interesting fact or an interesting aside about that is Masons were present, the cornerstone was laid, 
the cornerstone has since never been found. After the British fire in 1814, there was a search for it, could not be found. During the extensive Truman restoration in the uh, late 1940s, when the interior of the house was completely uh, made hollow and rebuilt with a new modern infrastructure, a search was made at that time to find the cornerstone, could not be found. So there's a lot of speculation and mystery about the Masons and the Cornerstone and what mystical place it may be in today. Uh, actually, during that Truman Restoration, there were many stones unearthed in the White House that had the banker's marks on them that the stonemasons used. And uh, Truman gave those, distributed those to many of the Masonic lodges in the area, and they still treasure those and prize them today. But the Masons did have a significant influence in, in early Washington. There are a lot of references to that in the designs of buildings, including the Washington Monument itself. Uh, there's reference uh, to some of the imagery and iconography on our American currency. But the buildings themselves, the Capitol, the White House, and others have uh, still to this day carry a mystique about the Masonic imagery and influence and building. Freemasonry was growing here in this country. James Hoban himself uh, began uh, one of the early lodges here in Washington, D.C., and they still honor him. In fact, the head of the Freemasons attended our wreath laying at the Hoban gravesite the day before St. Patrick's Day this year, and I'll actually be recording one of my podcasts, the 1600 sessions this week, on uh, the role of the Masons in the building of the White House. So I hope that they'll divulge even more to me in that conversation. It's something that we are aware of and that we talk about, uh, and that is clearly apparent in all of the early buildings of the federal city in that uh, period that I talked about, 1790 to 1800. And then, of course, that continued. But it was in that period that that initial Masonic influence came to bear on our Capitol and on our White House. And the Freemasonry at the time, you know, in, in Ireland itself, it was an important kind of intellectual influence. And ironically, I suppose, given our conversation today, the ideas of the American Revolution were in part communicated in Ireland through things like the Freemasons and the United Irishmen of those decades. But for a man like James Hoban, would it also have been a kind of a business thing? You know, would it have been more closely connected to stonemasonry and things like that? Well, I think so. But I think it also would have been reminiscent, something that was made him feel connected to home. It would have been something like the Catholic Church would have been, something comforting and familiar to him. But I do know that it was important to him uh, he used that influence and used that connectivity in his work here, and it was certainly not anything he uh, hid or shied away from. Yeah, I mean, in Ireland itself, Freemasonry developed a kind of reputation for anti-Catholicism within the kind of sectarian politics in Ireland itself. So, you know, in some ways it seems surprising to see, you know, a prominent Catholic who was also a Mason. It's, in Irish terms, it seems like a contradiction. Well, America was full of contradictions, I suppose, at the time. So I don't know uh, how those two influences on Hoban would have exactly been reconciled by him or merged into the man that he became. But we do have very strong evidence that he was actively engaged in work related to his Catholic faith, but he was also deeply involved in leadership roles in forming the early lodges of uh, Freemasonry here in uh, Washington. Okay, and just to wrap up, Stuart, can you tell us maybe about his later life and possibly something about his descendants? Well, we do know that he had descendants. Uh, he had a son who looked apparently quite a bit like him. In fact, 
there's only one image that we know of of Hoban himself, and it's a very small wax image, and it's actually on the cover of the book, this, this book that we're talking about today, part of the cover art of that book. But frequently, in news accounts of the 18th century in Washington or in the United States, there'll be an image of a James Hoban, which was actually his son, but people mistake that image for being our James Hoban, the, the senior. Uh, and it's because apparently they looked so much alike. Uh, the name continued in, uh, among his descendants for two or three generations. And then in terms of his direct descendants, we believe that the Hoban name would have stopped somewhere in the 19th century, but some lineal descendants still are around. In fact, several have bubbled up during the course of this conversation. We, I was recently contacted by an architecture firm in London uh, that goes by the name of Hoban, and they claim to have relational descendancy from the Hoban family uh, that included our James Hoban here. And so I'm sure we'll learn more about that, uh, but there is a family plot uh, of Hoban's and his immediate descendants uh, around his grave in Mount Olivet Cemetery here in Washington. Well, thank you very much, Stuart. We really appreciate you coming on the show today. And the book itself is a beautifully produced anthology to some wonderful illustrations and portraits in it and some very fine essays as well. You can check out the White House Historical Association especially the Zoom launch, the book, which is very, very interesting on their YouTube page. And if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. So on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.